0: Hi everyone, I'm Lauren, if I haven't met you before, and I get to read the Bible for us this morning. So if you've got a Bible from the back, uh, it's on page 1090, we're flipping right to the back to the last book of the Bible, Revelations chapter 2, and we're starting at verse 18. If you're on your phone, the um, version we use at church here is the Christian Standard Bible. So Revelations chapter 2, starting at verse 18 write to the angel of the church in thyatira thus says the son of god the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze i know your works your love faithfulness service and endurance i know that your last works are greater than the first but i have this against you you tolerate the woman jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality And to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction. Unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I am not putting any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery. Just as I have received this from my father, I will also give him the morning star. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So far from God's word.
1: Good morning, church at nine. Great to be here with you. My name is Greg. I'm one of the ministers here at OEC, looking in particular after church at four, but it's wonderful to be with you here so early in the morning on a Sunday. Um, keep your, um, on your outlines, sorry, in your handouts, there's an outline, I'll get it right. Um, you can see where we're going there. Um, the, the points will come up on the screen as well, but if you want to take notes, that's a great place to do it. Keep your Bibles open at that passage. Uh, any other passage will come up uh, up on the screen for you. Well, none of us like the feeling of being deceived, do we? Uh, And some groups of people are more well-known for deception than others. So when I bought uh, my car before my current one from a second-hand car dealer, on the lot, it looked just fantastic. You know, shiny, looked like a new car, just had a few more Ks than a new car. I loved the car. It was great for a few months. Um, and then it became clear that the shiny look was just a car yard special, all right? Um, the car itself was great. The Ks were accurate, but the shiny paint very quickly faded, and the true stain of the paintwork became crystal or not so crystal clear. Um, it was obvious that my not-so-shiny new second-hand car had spent a lot of time in the sun, and they'd covered that up in the lot. Uh, but there was nothing I could do about it. I'd already parted with the money. They weren't going to take it back. And the car itself was actually quite good, so I kept it for quite some time. I just needed to put up with this fading paintwork. So I was deceived by a sneaky, sneak, sneak tricks of the second-hand car yard salesman. Now, deceiving car yard salesmen are one thing, but when deception happens closer to home, it hurts much more, doesn't it? You know, the friend at school who seems so trustworthy uh, then so quickly turns their back on you uh, and seeks to undermine all your friendships. It's terrible isn't it when that sort of thing happens maybe the the partner that sneaks behind the back of their spouse and betrays the very vows they promised to keep that deep deception master storyteller Roald Dahl said these words uh, he said the cruelest lies are often told in silence the power of deception and he's so right it's so destructive And when we've fallen for the deception, when we've been deceived and then realise what's happened, we work out that we've believed a lie, we've based what we've said and done on something that's not true, it feels so terrible, doesn't it? We feel betrayed, we feel hurt, we feel like there's so much more we need to undo, words we need to take back, words we need to correct, apologies we need to make, relationships that have been damaged. Uh, we've been working through the letters in the last couple of weeks—letters uh, from Jesus to the churches in what is now Turkey. Letters from the One who died for them. Letters from the One who loves them, who rose for them, who who reigns for them, and He warns them of the different of the different things that threaten their faith. We've seen the danger of forgetting and lacking love going through the motions in Ephesus, the danger of giving up in the face of persecution from Smyrna. And today we return to the danger of deception, false teaching, lies that excuse sin and that leads people away from the Jesus who saved them, who died for them, who is their judge and who is their king. It's the same danger we saw last week in the church at Pergamon, and it's the danger we see again in the church at Thyatira. Clearly, this is an important problem, isn't it, for the church, that Jesus writes to two churches on the same issue. A serious danger that we need to stop and listen and consider how we can ensure that the lies and the deceptions don't cause us to turn away from our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Let's pray that we would listen well today. Father God, we thank you for your word, for your great, good and true word. Help us to listen well to it. Help us to humble our hearts we pray that you would remind us of the things we need to hear again. We pray that you would change us by your spirit, that we would leave leave here changed by your word and your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, now before we work through this letter to of Jesus to the church in Thyatira, what was life like for the Christian in that city? What do we know about the pressures that they faced in the city that they called home as people following Jesus? Well, unlike Ephesus, there's there's not a lot of extensive archaeological work done in Thyatira. There's not, not much digging evidence, and we don't know much about the city. Uh, it lies beneath what is now the city of Akisar, and so there's not a lot of archaeological work done. What we do know is that it was most likely a trade town, a trade town in a fertile valley on a key trade route. So it's not a Canberra or a Sydney. It's more like Newcastle or Wollongong, all right? That's probably more what it's like. Likely grown rich from trade and agriculture. One thing we do know about the town is that there's evidence of the presence of more trade guilds in this town than any other city uh, that we've seen in Asia Minor that the work's been done in. So think of trade guilds as like trade unions, all right? Like old trade unions when they had lots of power, like in the 80s, where if you weren't a member, it was almost impossible to find work. So there were these trade guilds for, there's evidence of trade guilds for wool workers, linen workers, other garment makers, dyers, um, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave traders, and bronze smiths, evidence of those sort of guilds within the city of Thyatira. And often a part of being members of those guilds It meant that you had to hang out with the mates at the temple, at the local temples. They would worship the gods together. Worship of the gods and these guilds went hand in hand. And often what went hand in hand with the worship of gods in these temples was temple prostitutes, sexual immorality. So to be a Christian in Thyatira could often mean finding work was going to be hard if you were a tradie, if you weren't going to be a part of these guilds and what they did. If you weren't willing to hang out with the boys in the temples, then you weren't part of the crew and you probably wouldn't get work. That's what life was like. And this picture of following Jesus isn't particular to Thyatira. That was common all across the Roman Empire. Following Jesus, refusing to worship the Roman gods meant you were different, meant you were excluded, meant that life was hard. Early Christians were labelled as atheists. Why were they labelled as atheists? Because they didn't worship the Roman gods. It was an insult because they refused to worship them. And so this temptation to compromise, this temptation to incorporate the worship of idols into Christianity was really strong. The church in Thyatira was in danger from these lies and deceptions that drew people away from Jesus and back into false worship, back into false idolatry and sexual sin. Before we come to the warning, let's have a look at the encouragement that we see in this letter from Jesus to the church. The letter opens with Jesus addressing the church, reminding them that he's the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. It takes us back to the image of Jesus at the end of chapter 1 of Revelation, the vision of Jesus who appears in frightening glory and power, who's both the judge and the saviour, whose tongue is a sharp sword, the words of his mouth, the risen king who dwells among the churches, who knows what they're going through, who has words of encouragement and words of warning. And have a look at these first words of encouragement, verse 19, to the church, to the Christians in Thyatira. He says, I know your works, your love, your faithfulness, service and endurance. I know your last works are greater than the first. So these men and women, in the face of temptations and persecutions and difficulties, are models of maturity and faith. They love God. They love one another. They serve, they give, they persevere, they endure. Unlike the Christians in Ephesus whose love for God had grown stale, Jesus commends their works now are better than their works at the first. So they're growing. These are the sorts of men and women, young and old, you would want leading your youth group, leading your growth groups, leaders in the church. They seem to have the whole package. They've got love and faith and hope. And patient endurance altogether, and they're growing. But with all that growing maturity, there's a real and present danger, and that's the danger of deception that Jesus warns them of. Verse 20. But I have this against you you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Jezebel, she's a character from the Old Testament that Jesus is picking up on here. She was the wife of Israel's King Ahab way back in 1 and 2 Kings, the end of 1 Kings, the beginning of 2 Kings, you'll meet her. She was queen, if you want to put it like that, when Elijah and Elisha were prophets uh, in Israel in the north. She was a princess in her own country of Sidon. So she was a Gentile daughter of King Ethbal of Sidon. And Jezebel was a piece of work. She really was. She brought the worship of Baal and Asherah into Israel. She hated God. She killed God's prophets. She hunted them down so vehemently that Elijah gathered a hundred of them and hid them in caves and gave them food and shelter, so that they were cared for and preserved from Jezebel. Worship of God went underground when Jezebel was around. It says this about the king, about the reign of King Ahab, 1 Kings 21. Uh, there was no one like Ahab who devoted himself to do what was evil in the Lord's sight because his wife Jezebel incited him. He committed the most detestable acts by following idols as the Amorites had, whom the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. And as you read through the account of Ahab's kingship, that's exactly what happened. And you can see the influence of Jezebel in that. Just like the worship of the Roman gods, the worship of Baal and Asherah, involved sexual immorality and so Jezebel deceived the people, led them to believe lies and led them into sexual immorality. It happened in Elijah's time, in Elisha's time, and it's happening again in Thyatira. And while we don't have a lot to go on, really, all we've got is really this letter, we do get a bit of an insight into the nature of deceptions that are infiltrating the church in Thyatira. Verse 20, those speaking these deceptions call themselves prophets and prophetesses, and so they claim to speak on behalf of God and bring God's word to them. The deceptions they speak, verse 24, you can see it there, it's described as the secrets of Satan. They are deceptions that provide secret knowledge that allows sin to flourish and excuses engagement in idol worship and sexual immorality. Because of this teaching, people in the church are being led into sin excusing immorality, engaging in idol feasts in a way that promotes the worship of idols alongside the worship of the one true God. As you read through this, there's similarities between what's happening here and what was happening in Corinth, as you read in 1 Corinthians, a church that also struggled with the deceptions that led to sexual immorality and engaging in feasts that celebrated idol worship. Uh, like the church in Thyatira, there were those who tolerated sexual immorality in the church. And you can see that in 1 Corinthians 5, that patch will come up on the screen. Celebrating the fact that they welcomed someone who was involved in a sexual relationship with their mother-in-law. It's actually reported that there was sexual immorality among you and the kind of immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are arrogant. Shouldn't he be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? Then a few chapters on, it speaks about, uh, like the church in Thyatira, the church in Corinth, there were people engaged in feasts that involved the worship of idols in chapter 10. But how do you reconcile this sort of sin with the description of the people in Thyatira, the encouragement about their godliness and their maturity, the way it's described as a faithful, serving, growing group of Christians? How How do you reconcile way that they're falling with that and in order to answer that question there's one word we need to appreciate and that's the word tolerate the word tolerate so not everyone in the church had fallen for the lies of Jezebel and thrown themselves into a, a life of idol feasting and sexual immorality but they tolerate those who teach these lies who promote this life of immorality and permissive idolatry In fact, as as you read through this letter to the church in Thyatira, it's clear that there's three groups of people within the church that Jesus is addressing. Verse 22, there's those who commit adultery with Jezebel, those who have believed the deception, who've accepted the lies and lived that way, excuse this life of unchecked sin. Verse 20, there are those who tolerate the deceptions of those who teach these lies. So they don't actually engage in it themselves They don't believe the deception. They don't engage in the sin and idolatry, but they see it come into the church and they don't do anything about it. They tolerate it. They keep the peace. They don't speak against the influence of those who lead God's people astray. Then verse 24, you meet a third group of people, the rest, who don't accept accept the teaching of Jezebel, who are burdened by this deception infiltrating the church. This letter to the, uh, from the risen Lord Jesus to the church in Thyatira should cause us to ask a question, an important question. What deceptions do we tolerate? What lies do we turn a blind eye to? Do we ignore? What false teaching are we open to? Because that's what was happening in the church in Thyatira, and that was the danger. There's a false teaching working its way through the church, a teaching that says that to be in committed uh, committed same-sex relationships can be blessed by God. That's a teaching that's rolling through the church across the world. The approach of the world to sexuality is infecting the church and leading people to a life where sin is excused, where the teaching of God is undermined. It's a teaching that's been welcomed by some, tolerated by others, and it leads people to sin and idolatry. Lies about sexuality are excusing sexual sin in the church and by their leaders. Such lies are the lies of Satan that are destroying the servants of Jesus and that's a deception that is impacting and dividing denominations as we speak. This danger is a real and present danger for the church and we would do well to listen. But there's more deceptions than these. Uh, Let me speak about another one. Because the key issue in this letter isn't sexual immorality in particular or idolatry in particular. The key issue is tolerating the deceptions that lead people to excuse sin. That's the key issue. That leave God's people open to the lies of Satan that draw them away from God and the faithful following of their saviour. So I want to talk about our understanding of church. Our culture is a consumer culture. Our culture is a culture that puts the individual at the centre and is increasingly and more stridently individualistic. And that culture is impacting the way that we think about church. The New Testament speaks of the church as the body of Christ. And as the fellow um, believers, we become a family. We become brothers and sisters belonging to one another. Church is the temple of the living God. And as God has gathered his church gathered us in Christ, in the heavenly realm, so we should gather together regularly as God's people. It's a priority. Church doesn't exist for me, to serve me, to provide for me, to make me feel good about about myself. When When I come to church, I shouldn't come to be fed, to be moved, to be encouraged, although these things should happen, of course. But we should go to church to serve, not to be served, to give, not to receive, to love, not to be loved. There's a lie in the church that the church is there for me. The consumer mentality that so easily infects the way we think about church. These people will tell you that going to church is an optional extra for Christians. That you can go if it suits you, if it feels good, but you don't really need it as a follower of the Lord Jesus. And these lies can result in inactive servants of Jesus in his church a lack of commitment to the gathering of God's people, a lack of attendance, a desire to turn up late because church is about me. It's not about Jesus or the growth of his kingdom and his people. And this teaching can so easily lead to isolation as people find that they're they're not able to find the church that really, really just floats their boat, that suits them, that agrees with them, that makes them feel good about themselves. Satan loves this because Christians on their own are so much more open to deception and Temptation. I keep meeting people who believe this lie about church, who've been churching on their own for many years. That's an oxymoron, isn't it? It doesn't work. You can't church on your own. Church means gathering. You can't church on your own. But I've, I keep on meeting more and more people like that, who've just walked away from church and think they can be at church on their own, listening to their favourite preachers, disobeying their Lord's command together with God's people. These deceptions we shouldn't tolerate. And the way that they hamstring ministry and hamstring the growth of God's people. Instead, we need to hold to the teaching of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's just one other example, isn't it? There's so many others we could pick on. But I just want to talk about that one in particular. Whatever the lies and deceptions that sweep through the church, Whatever they might be, the solution is exactly the same. It's a solution that Jesus gave to the church in Thyatira. Hold on to the teaching of the risen Lord Jesus. And you see this in verse 25. Only hold on to what you have until I come, he says. So let's think about how this impacts on the three different groups that we've met in the church in Thyatira. Firstly, those who believed the deception of Jezebel, who have, verse 22, committed adultery with her, Well, they need to hold on to the teaching of the risen Lord Jesus Christ and for them that will mean what? Repentance. It'll mean the truth of the word will shine a light on the deceptions they've accepted. They'll see their sin for what it is. They'll turn from the lies, listen to the word, see that they've compromised their trust in Jesus. They'll say sorry to him. They'll turn around, stop their sin, turn from the deceptions and listen again to the words of God. For those who've tolerated the deceptions of Jezebel, they'll see the danger that such lies pose for the growth of God's people, they'll speak against them. They'll again speak the truth. They'll answer the deceptions with the truth. They'll let the truth of the gospel shape what they teach and encourage God's people with these words of truth. For the rest of them, those who are burdened by the deception, who see the lies for what they are, they'll continue their opposition. They'll continue to hold on, And teach and encourage with words of truth and life to those around them. And be encouraged by them themselves as well. Hold on to what you already have, he says. Because what you already have, what is it? It's the living, active, powerful, life-giving word of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it is. Consider the wonder of what we have in our hot little hands. It's an amazing thing. Hold on to it. The living word of God, teach it, listen to it, encourage, rebuke and challenge with it. Let this be what you test everything against. To trade the word of God for deception is like trading in a brand spanking new Rolls Royce for my old Honda Civic. And that's after I wrote it off. All right. Be crazy to do that, wouldn't you? There's a better comparison. It's like trading your shiny, expensive, beautiful engagement ring that was given to you when uh, you accepted the offer of marriage from your fiancé with a plastic ring from a gumball machine. You wouldn't do it, would you? Even if it was this vintage pet fishbowl ring like this one here, you just wouldn't do it. It's just not a comparison, is it? Ridiculous. There's just no comparison. The living, active word of the risen Lord Jesus is worth holding on to and listening to, and teaching. Even if the culture has moved on and consider what it says to be dangerous and irrelevant, no, we hold on to it. Even if it comes to mean that we find it hard to get work because we don't worship what the world worships, like it did for those in Thyatira. You hold on to it and you sit under it. Over the last three weeks, we've been cc'd into letters from Jesus written to the churches in Turkey. In Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and Thyatira. And the overall message is really simple. It's the one we've been talking about. It's the message, listen. It's the message 2, verse 7. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. 2, verse 11, he says the same thing. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Happens again, verse 17, verse 29, the end of each letter. So will you listen? Your creator, your saviour, your judge has spoken. Every letter to the churches in Revelation chapter 2 is just as relevant today as it was to them then. And we have the rest of God's word in our hot little hands as well. One of the markers of Christian maturity in the New Testament is not being shifted around by different teachings, but by ideas that take us away from the centrality of the gospel. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 4 as he speaks about growing into maturity in the fullness in Christ. He says this, Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning and cleverness in the techniques of deceit, but speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. So let me ask you this. Are you able to recognise false teaching when you hear it? When you're listening to your favourite preacher, can you work out when what they're saying doesn't come from God's word? When they're leading you away from what Jesus has said to some other way of living the Christian life that's divorced from him. If not, then we need to work at it. And the best way to work at it, to grow in a Christian walk in your knowledge and love and service of the Lord Jesus is to listen, to be equipped, to study God's word so that you won't be swayed by the winds of teaching that blow through the church. Life as a Christian in Roman times was tough. It called for perseverance. It was faith in the face of persecution and rejection, suffering and temptation. And while our world is very different, our world is also much the same. It hasn't changed. The deceptions are the same deceptions, dressed up differently in more modern clothing. And the way we conquer, the way we stand firm, the way we persevere and endure and serve and grow is the same. We listen. Listen with hearts that long to change. Listen, willing to be corrected. Listen, willing to be rebuked and encouraged as well. Let's pray we will continue to do that. Father, we thank you for your good word. And we pray that we would listen to it. We pray that we would not accept the deceptions that well, that, uh, that are spoken by different people. Help us to always bring what other people say and what we say to your word. But we want to sit under what it says, what you have said, and that through that we would
0: grow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.